Hi, I'm Tony Goldsby-Smith, the host of Gospel Conversations, and welcome to this talk. It's actually the first talk we've had back face-to-face uh, -face in a couple of years. So it was a lovely warm gathering we had um, about a week ago. At Gospel Conversations, we're dedicated to exploring and recovering what we like to call the creation gospel. And in so doing, finding a bigger God and a bigger project that we are involved in, a bigger story. This particular talk's about Habakkuk, which is one of the so-called minor prophets. Uh, I like to say they're minor, not in uh, profundity, just in length. And it's the first of two talks on, on Habakkuk, uh, which, which I give. One of our key themes in Gospel Conversations is exploration. Uh, that means we embrace ambiguity. We, we love a sense of inquiry and mystery, uh, which accepts we don't have all the answers. In fact, it, it implies that um, growth and development is more about asking and finding the right or the most astute questions. And it, this is exactly what Habakkuk demonstrates, and hence my interest in it. It's amongst a very small group of Old Testament texts that give us a very explicit example of inquiry. And it very much suggests this is the kind of mind that God wants. Not the mind that's got all the answers with fundamentalist assuredness of having all those answers, but rather a mind that is very authentic and open to um, addressing paradoxes. Uh, unfortunately, in the, in the world we're in today, and we all know what a world this is with the fundamentalist far right of Christianity becoming, particularly in America, more and more dominant, a lot, lots of Christians aspire to propositional certainty. So they therefore expect the Bible to back up this certainty, to deliver this certainty. As we learned from the recent interviews I did with David Bentley Hart, the great Gregory of Nyssa thought the opposite to this. In fact, he embraced mystery and he built an epistemology around mystery. And he thought of growth as uh, infinite uh, stretching out after God. I think apectasis was the Greek word that David used. And, and this is exactly what Habakkuk models for us. Um, it's an unusual book because in the entire three chapters, it's about not the prophecies that Habakkuk gives or the context or the situation. None of that's there. We don't actually know what he said and who he said it to. We can only guess. We think he's a contemporary of Jeremiah, for instance. Um, it's about the inner journey of the prophet. And so what we are observing is the mind of the prophet. Now that's structured via a dialogue because if I look at my own mental situation, a dialogue, an internal dialogue, is the best way to, or one of the best ways to characterize it. Um, and it's a dialogue, of course, of God. So what we have is a picture here of a restless, roving mind. And um, I think it's a really good role model for, for us in gospel conversations. And that's why Habakkuk fits in with our vision of uh, bigger God 
bigger bigger project. Uh, look, it fits in, in one other way I do want to mention, uh, and that is our epistemology at, at Gospel Conversations and how we think we should handle the Bible. Uh, I'd probably uh, summarise this as a multi-perspectival approach. You know, I think too often biblical studies is very narrow and treats the Bible as some kind of textbook, whereas a view... Uh, that looks at the Bible from various different angles seems much more generative. Um, for instance, history, and we've had a lot of that in Gospel Conversations with Edwin Judge's talks, for instance, a lot of the assumptions behind John Walton and Ian Provence talks has been giving a contextual historical view of the Bible. Uh, the other big one is philosophy. Now, we're about to have Esther Meek come out, and she will really give us an epistemology of mystery in a way, an epistemology of the kind of mind we see in, in, um, in Habakkuk. And of course, our conversations with David Bentley Hart were very much framed by his philosophical um, mind and genius. Uh, my background is literature and literary analysis, apart from my business world, and um, that's one of my key backgrounds. Handling text, you know, and, and, and that means you know, imagery and narrative structure and the voice. It's, it really means how the, how the book is framed. And this is particularly important in Habakkuk uh, for reasons that you'll see, that uh, the, the, the real topic, if, if the real topic is the mind of the poet, that's actually rather um, indirectly um, accessed uh, via the text. You've got to see through the text into the way he's thinking and talking as being almost the most important thing. So for a variety of reasons, Habakkuk is really interesting to us. I think it's a great, it's one of the great um, books of, uh, of the Old Testament. So we, uh, we commend this to you. Oh, Habakkuk. Um, I've wanted to give this talk for a long while. Um, I've, had it pa I've had it packaged and, and I hope that it's not like the kind of thing that if you keep like a bottle of wine for too long and open it up, it's gone flat. You know? <laughs> so, I'll tell you why I've chosen Habakkuk. Um, Anne and I read the Minor Prophets some time back. I guess, I don't know if we're like, if everyone else is like this, but the Minor Prophets for us were, yeah, we just never read them or studied them much, so we thought we'll get into them. And we were universally impressed by them. Um, and Habakkuk was the one, I think, that made possibly the biggest impression on me um, for the reason that it is intense poetry, but it's unlike any of the other prophetic books because it's actually not about prophecy, it's about the mind of the prophet. So the whole book is a unlike any of the other ones, it's not a, a set of um, proclamations, you know, against the nation of Israel or their leaders. It, it's, 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 that's there, but what it's really about is his questioning of God, and it's a journey. Um, and as such, it, that's why I called it the Hamlet of uh, the Old Testament. It's like a soliloquy, you know, when one of the most powerful and attractive things about Shakespeare, uh, the tragic characters are the soliloquies where an entirely different dialogue is set up. It's no longer a dialogue on the stage. The actor almost steps out of the stage, Hamlet, and says, let me tell you what I'm thinking. And, and there's this very intimate 
scale to those as we're uh, looking at someone uh, in the depths of their soul. Well, that's what we have with Habakkuk, and I thought that was really unique. Um, now, and as what it is actually, although only short, three chapters, it is also among the most quoted books in the New Testament. So, you know, the really, really famous, the just shall live by faith, which is Romans. Well, that, guess what? That's Habakkuk. Um, the, one of my all-time favourite verses, um, which is the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk. Um, and then the incredibly wonderful, famous last two verses, though the fig tree does not blossom, and there is no fruit in the vine, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's probably the most gorgeous little couplet of, of hope in dark times ever written that. It's, it's, uh, it's just simple, gorgeous uh, imagery, um, but of stoic hope in the face of dark times. So it's got beautiful poetry, but what it can offer us is really how did he get to the last two verses of the book? Because his, his life and situation was in uh, uh, despair, dark times, I'll talk about that. So we're looking at a journey of someone confronting dark times that defied their faith and expectations coming through to a position of rest. So the interesting thing, therefore, is that it's about the mind of the prophet, which I call the inner journey of faith. But the second thing that I wanted to... Uh, emphasize with the handling of Habakkuk is that I will handle it as literature. I mean, that's my background, that's my training, that's my greatest skill, long, long time ago, but that's what I did my degree in. And um, by and large, there's a lot of, I suppose, new perspectives on the Bible from history, but there's another angle of literature, reading the Bible as literature, which is not so well done. And so I will be, um, as we talk through it, reading it as, as literature, because I think what the literature does is open up this, um, well, what I'm calling the inner journey, what you, Paul, were calling the dialogue, which I think is the same thing, actually. Um, and you're almost getting, getting therefore, a double, uh, a double line of content and manner of expression because when you study something as literature you don't just extract content from it you it's just as important how it is said as what is said so you kind of got to do a twin track um so with that with that in mind um i'll what what i've done first of all is just photocopied the entire um book and there's a reason for this, which is that uh, one of the important points of literature is seeing something as a whole, not just parts. And very few people do that. You know, to actually understand any text, you've got to go big picture back to little picture. If you were to, for instance, to try to analyse 
Hamlet or Macbeth or you try to analyse a novel, you've got to actually go look at the flow and the arrangement, which is very important, and then go down into detail. If we believe that the, the whole Bible is inspired, then so is, the, so is the narrative structure. That's also telling us something as, as well as the, the, the verses. And so one of the most powerful things you can do is try to get mentally a whole book on a page, as it were. Uh, it's often not possible, but if you do, you start to see big chunks and connections, which is how I'll, I'll mainly look at it tonight. But uh, to begin with, um, I want to look at the... Um, I, I want to make one more point um, about why I think inner journeys or dialogue are important. Uh, and it goes back to a comment that many, many years ago Stuart Piggin told me. One of the weaknesses of the Reformation is that they put all their faith in propositions and they never created an alternative to the Jesuit meditation technique. That the Catholics taught people how to meditate and the Jesuit uh, system was very strong that way. How to actually live with your thoughts and manage them. And I, don't, I think, I, I think the, the Ignatius the Loyola system is awful because it's, it's built on guilt, but nonetheless it's a system of internal mental discipline that you go through. And Stuart told me that the Protestants never created an alternative to, to that. They put all their faith in propositions. Um, so to the extent that we see a dialogue going here and a, a journey of faith, it's, it's actually a pretty, it, it can be a very useful model for how to meditate about something. So with that, his situation was um, perilous. Um, and that's, uh, it's really worthwhile beginning with, with his context. I don't know how familiar everyone is with Israel's history, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll do a sketch of it here just to bring it to life best I can. So it, what had happened is that the, you can see that, yep. Um, as we know, the high point of Israel's kingship was David um, and his son Solomon. And almost immediately after Solomon, things went downhill. Now, of course, back prior to that, prior to David and Solomon, we've got Moses, the Exodus, and we've got Abraham. So God is re revealing himself in Genesis and Exodus to Abraham and Moses. And this, is, um, this revelation is the only revelation of monotheism on the planet. Every other religion is poly, polytheistic. And as Ian Proven has pointed out in, in the, the great talks he gave on the Old Testament Reloaded, that isn't just it. For only the God of Moses was eternal, transcendent and outside of creation. All the other gods were divine, but they were part of creation. So the very concept today, this big, big word God that we've all got in our heads, was absolutely unique. And it was that 
um, picture and understanding of God that was given to Israel. Now, what happened with that picture was after Solomon, we know that they split um, into uh, his son Rehoboam and the, the rival Jeroboam. And Jeroboam really began what is often called Israel, i.e. the northern tribes, 10 of them. And they had a history. And Rehoboam began what is the southern tribes of Judah, two of them. One of the most devastating chapters you can ever read, if you read Kings carefully, it's chapter 14. It must be 1 Kings, is it? To, to read, has anyone read what Jeroboam did? I mean, I, when Anne and I read it, we were just, our jaws dropped. I mean, he set up an entire shadow religion up north because he, he didn't want, he, had to, he built another temple. He, he, he uh, mixed it up with the Canaanites. So it wasn't like a rejection in, uh, of monotheism into uh, Baal and... Uh, the pagan gods. It wasn't that simple. It was more syncretic. He, 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 he merged what he'd got from Moses with the local religions, but then he set up a, a, an entire shadow priesthood and everything up north. It's just one chapter. You read it through and it's jaw-dropping. And, and Israel from then on, the northern tribes were far darker than the southern ones. You know, the, 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 the four or five good kings who followed were all down here. And, and there was rivalry between them. Um, for the, up until you know, the earlier part of this uh, conflict, their enemies were local city-states like Edom or the, the inhabitants of the land. That's who Joshua was fighting. But sort of halfway through the history, this huge power, just think Putin, think Ukraine, of Assyria, um, began to roll across Mesopotamia and the Assyrians started to attack and they were not like these small city-states. They were a, a vastly organised empire. They were incredibly cruel engineers of war um, and they, they started to um, encroach down and eventually they sacked uh, I think in about 720 BC um, the northern tribes and they were finished the northern tribes were finished that was the end of them they they didn't really ever regather uh, Assyria took lots of them away repopulated the place and they became what, what today are the Samaritans so it was pretty well the end of 10 out of 12. And that had all happened while down here uh, in the, in, amongst the Judah tribes, things were much better. Um, however, um, eventually they too went downhill and Manasseh and then his son Josiah, who was the last gasp of a, of a good king, um, Josiah brought reforms to Israel, but his four sons were 
uh, evil, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that, and then around about 600 BC to 586 BC, in came a new um, despotic empire, the Babylonians, who also defeated the Assyrians. Assyria disappeared. Ancient historians are just like, they, 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 they fell as soon as they rose. Nobody quite knows why. Um, so what you're looking at is this incredibly, you're just looking at a gradual loss of everything that began with Moses. If you just put yourself in, Habakkuk is, is, is a, probably in this period here, same time as Jeremiah. In other words, everything looks like it's finished. Everything looks like it's finished. Long ago, the, the 10 tribes of Israel had gone. Um, the two tribes of Judah who are, are left are really behaving badly. So that's how, that's the situation that he has. Um, it seems that there's nothing left of uh, faith in God. So what is at risk? And I think it's really worthwhile bearing this in mind. Um, what is at risk is not a religion, it's the knowledge of God on the face of the earth. That, that's what's at risk. There's a fascinating verse in Jeremiah, I think it's, I think it's nine, where God actually says, when I brought you out of Egypt, I did not command you to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. I wanted you to listen to me. It's so stunning that the NIV actually moderates it. The, I've, I've quoted the English Standard Version, which by the way, Ian Province says is the most reliable Hebrew one. The NIV says, when I brought you out of Egypt, I did not just command you to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. If you think about it, that's completely different. It's like, I did, but as well as that. So I wrote to Ian last week, said Ian, which is right. He said the, the English Standard Version is completely correct. There is no just in the Hebrew. And then he said, well, what does this mean? I said, oh, it seems God is not particularly interested in religion and ritual. He, said, he wants us to know and understand who he is as creator of the universe. And the ritual is just a pathway to that. As a matter of fact, as Ian paraphrased it, if you, if you don't understand and love me, you may as well eat your own sacrifices. I'm not interested in them. So what's at stake is the knowledge of God, the metaphysics of a monotheistic God on the, on the, on the planet. You, it, it's sort of like the end of it, everything. Um, interestingly, the other thing that we begin to see uh, throughout the whole of this period with the prophets is that... Um, their criticisms, as far as I can work out, like were 95% in two categories. One was idolatry and the other was social justice. Very interesting, the concept of quote unquote sin. It's not individual, it's not like a modern, you know, post-Victorian gra grappling with a dark self. It's, it's loving your neighbor, it's rich people ripping off poor people. Um, and um, that context has to be borne in mind. So that this declension here, this declension was a declension in society as much as it was in faith. 
So all along here, there's this great question, which um, I love uh, going on. Uh, it's a question by, um, posed uh, by Sergei Bulkakov. Has anyone read much Bulkakov? Good, I'm sure you have, Paul. <laughs> I've just come across him. Um, so David uh, Bentley Hart put me onto him. He's, he said he's the greatest his view, theologian of the last 150 years, whether he's right or not, I don't know, but certainly has the highest Christology. Very interesting man, uh, Russian. But at the introduction to his book, uh, which is called The Lamb of God, he has this chilling sentence, which I've just never forgotten since I read it. And the sentence is this. Um, the question that slithers across the face of the earth like a serpent is who will govern the earth. The God-man or the man-God, the devil or God. And that question of who, who will govern the earth is a tremendous way, I think, to look at this. Who's going to govern the earth? So that's the, that's the context. Um, and in, in that context, if we look now at the overall, uh, how in this book, which is entirely, as I say, about, it's entirely about how Habakkuk um, evaluates what's going on and the challenge what's going on. So here's the structure um, in the book. It's essentially uh, composed of dialogues. So um, it's got dialogue one. Here's a dialogue with God which happens um, in chapter one. So his question essentially in the first four verses is, where are you, God? And I think the most um, powerful sentence is uh, verse four, the, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Um, it's, it's, it's that you know, really despairing phrase of the law is paralyzed. He, he, I think he's thinking of Josiah's reforms because Josiah was the boy king who did tremendous reforms and they just didn't last. Despite, he's actually called the best king, he's better than David, the writer of the king says. But everything he did fell apart after he died. And, um, the, and the, the, people, he just could, the people couldn't get out of their syncretism. They couldn't get out of their high places despite what he did. And it's as if, if I put myself in the position of anyone watching that, like Habakkuk, well, what power is there in your work, in your law? It's gone. It's it, it didn't work. It's not not lasting. So so that's his his challenge, and then in that challenge, so what we have is a, the dialogue is um, a question of doubt, and then God's answer, and. Um, God's answer is in the rest of chapter one, which essentially can be paraphrased in its awesome imagery that a new nation is rising. At this time, Babylon was nascent. A new nation is rising and they will exercise judgment on Judah. So, so the things that are upsetting you will have their consequences. The, 
through this instrument of Judah. So at one level, he got his answer. That, that, well, no, the law isn't paralyzed. No, the wicked won't keep prospering. They're going to get judged. Now, all that does is raise more questions for him. They're pretty obvious questions. And so we get into dialogue number two, which begins at the end of chapter one. So now he's got new questions. So now that, you, okay, God, you think you've answered me, but I've now got new questions, which is essentially the obvious question. How, are you, how and why are you using a pagan nation to do this? Because by any measure, even though we're pretty bad, we're better than them. There's more, there's, there are faithful people in Judah. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said. Faithful people in Judah. But how on earth are you, um, verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You have ordained them as a judgment and you, a rock, have established them for a proof. You can sort of hear, you've established them for a proof. You're kidding me. The Babylonians, they're going to do it. Um, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Like, it's, the, it's the language of disbelief. You can't look at wrong. That's, that's who you are. And yet you're using an, this vast pagan machine as your instrument. It doesn't map, map onto anything he could work with. Um, and... Um, So, this is dialogue two, which is, um, it finishes with this, like verses 15 to 17 are talking about the rapacious, senseless, bestial drive of Babylon. And he imagines them like fishermen who just fish and fish and, and suck up humanity. Um, and he ends in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is that what it is? So, so now that you've put your eggs in Babylon's basket, will he be able to mercilessly kill nations forever? Are you behind this evil? And in behind it, when I read that, I could really identify with the, I mean, the ultimate question is the sovereignty of God. How and why on earth are you, are you, where are you now? And you're telling me you're behind the Babylonian. So that's where he gets to in the second, at the end of the second dialogue from his point of view. Then something important happens, which is in uh, halfway through verse 17 to the end, which seems to me to be what I would call a pause or a transition where he gathers himself and he actually takes control of himself and he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. It's like, I don't know, but like a watchman on a watchtower, I expect he's going to say something. And this notion of expectation when I actually don't have the answers is really important. It's like he's calmed himself to the extent he's going to say, I'm waiting. This is actually 
something that Polanyi talked about, of all people, in knowledge. Um, Polanyi had this phrase called anticipative knowledge. Have you ever had this experience that I think something's coming, I think I'm going to find out something, but I don't know what it is yet? This sense of expectation before something happens. You could call it hope or whatever, but uh, Polanyi argued every great scientific achievement works this way. Before you actually get the evidence, you sort of think it's going to go this way. There's, perhaps you could call it intuition or whatever. Um, in other words, what I like about what Esther Meek does is that she takes experiences that we all have as human beings and thinks they're all sacred. So, so Habakkuk, as a prophet, you could say, is anticipating something, and we can call that faith. But every human being knows what it is to do that a little bit. So he's watching... Um, and then he gets God's next answer. And his next answer is really profound. We get it in, in two phases. And the first answer he gets from God is what I would call um, a uh, paradigm shift. And you get it in uh, chapter 2. The Lord answered me. So the Lord is answering him. And these are where the famous verses come. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. How on earth did Paul pluck that? That's where he got it from, the middle of a sentence. Like it's not as if it's the topic sentence and a great chapter comes out. It's in the middle of some rambling, outpouring you know, stream of consciousness, hard to understand. Thing. That's where it comes from. Uh, and then... I won't read the next verses, the next verse, because I want to concentrate on these ones. So th this is an epic little, it's not actually an answer, it's like a meta-answer. It's this is how you're going to understand me. And the, key, the, the first key word is a vision. So what God is saying is for you to interpret what's going on you're down in the middle of it. You're, you've got all sorts of anomalies and confusions. The first answer is you need vision. And the particular vision you need is the end. That's what he says. He says, uh, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. So that captures this sense of You'll only understand these local events as you have a vision of where it's all going and the ultimate end. Now, I would interpret that in modern terms as eschatology, a picture of where God is going on the earth, and that frames our ability to interpret all things. At the moment, it's just a fractal because it's, it, he doesn't develop it more. And that vision, the effect of that vision of 
God's ultimate purpose of all things will be that just person will live by that faith. That faith you will hang on to and that faith will be your north star, that will be your lighthouse and from that faith you'll be able to have a new light shining onto how you interpret things. That seems to be what God is saying to him. And this is incredibly important. The reason it's incredibly important is I think it's true in life. I mean, I've spent my life in, well, most of my professional life in corporates, organisations and systems. And only the great ones have a sense of where are we going? What's our goal? What's our vision? And if people have that, they, that seems to shine a light on all sorts of difficult circumstances. But if they don't have it, then everyone's lost. Um, there was a change in leadership in the US Marines many, a few years ago away f- toward what they call mission-centred leadership. They, they, their old leadership was procedure-based. Here's a, you know, 600 pages, if this happens, do this, if this happens, do this, if this happens, do this. And that was just not working. Too complicated, everyone was lost. And there was a seismic shift to the ability of a leader in any engagement to talk about the purpose. And then you work out how, how, what you do to get there. And that was called mission-centered leadership. So that's an example in, from human affairs, but this at a macro level is what Habakkuk had to learn that in, in the maelstrom of what was going on with Babylon and the decline of Israel. If you understand the end, you'll begin to understand everything. And it, this is um, another person who famously said the same thing, was Vico, um, the, uh, Descartes' great antagonist in the 17th century. And uh, Vico withstood Descartes' mathematical programming of reality in a famous phrase, he said, the only, way, the, only pers- the only way to understand anything is per causis, through the goal, backwards. No one understands a system if they don't understand its end and then work backwards. And then Vico famously said, and the only one who understands a system is the person who made it. Now, if we apply that to the Christian faith, and the gospel, it says you understand the gospel backwards, from the end of all things back, which is what Habakkuk was really getting a taste of here. So from that transition, that's really like a turning point, and then you get an interesting set of uh, woes, you know. Now, so, so God's answer, the second part, is a series of woes which run from the whole of the rest of, that's the third column, they're pretty interesting. Um, Obviously not the time to go into them now, but this is what I'd say about them. Those woes seem to be um, a, uh, they're a comfort that there'll be justice on the earth because they're all woes against the Babylonians. They're gonna have their day they, they, they will collapse too. They will be eaten up, and they were. Um, so, 
in terms of what you want, Habakkuk, there will be justice. So this is um, apparently um, justice on the earth. Uh, it's kind of saying Putin will have his day. It's kind of saying everyone at the end of the day will get what they're, what, what's coming to them. And if the book had stopped there, then it could look like, I think, a um, authorization of a sort of a cause and effect system that the whole world are causes and effects that are, that are happening. Um, and that if you, do, if you do wrong on the earth, then um, you will uh, be judged on the earth. But it, it, the, book, the book doesn't end there. And the reason I don't think it does end is because of this little verse I mentioned before, which is stuck away. Where is it there? Um, verse 14, uh, in the middle of the woes, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, there's this intimation that even beyond these woes, there will be a future kingdom that's bigger than this. And that then um, opens the way into chapter 3, which is a hymn. And that hymn in chapter 3 actually transcends all the local events. It's no longer about Babylon. It's no longer about um, the declension of the Ju Judah kings. It's all about... Uh, it's such uh, imagery-laden poetry that it's hard to locate it anywhere except in the book of Genesis. Because what he then says in, in, is... Um, o Lord, I've heard the report uh, of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, that's really, really important, what he's saying there. I've got you. I've got a picture of you. I've got a picture of your transcendence. His prayer is something we can all identify. In the midst of the years, revive it, i.e. your work. So what he means is this. Um, what he, he goes on to recall um, the Exodus. He goes on to recall, sorry, it begins even before that with the creation. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Uh, that's really recalling Genesis. And then he goes on to evoke the way God plucked them out of Egypt. What he's saying is, his prayer is, in the midst of the years, I here and now, in this crappy experiences I'm going through, would you please revive your work? Um, in the midst of the years, i.e. now, in our context, in this situation, will you please make your work known? Will you shine a light of this great vision of the end of all things into these circumstances? That's his prayer. And I think that's where we, we are. I mean, I think it's where we are in our lives that we're either in our own circumstances, in the circumstances where we're praying for the world, um, as we do a lot, you sort of feel hopeless and it's kind of thy kingdom come. Can you please, it doesn't look very much like your kingdom. It, it looks like the serpent is governing the earth. Can you please 
intervene, can you please bring this in? But to pray the prayer, you need the vision, which was the vision that he, he had now, as it were, um, achieved. And out of that long, I won't go through chapter three, but it's a, it's a hymn of, of praise that, that, that is very interesting because the imagery, the imagery in this third chapter is imagery of immense power, immense conquest that stands in, I think, a very notable contrast to the imagery from, which we didn't read through, chapter one, of the Babylonians' immense power. It's very interesting to contrast them because the imagery of Babylon's power is egocentric. It's powerful, but it's bestial, like he compares them to animals. The imagery in the third chapter is vastly more powerful because it shakes the entire earth. Like it's as if God's got the whole earth in his hand, you know, the whole cosmos is being shaken. And so it's, it's an imagery that eclipses even the brutality of this vast army. And when he gets through that picture, which I think is, a, is, is an extended picture we can read it probably with more insight than Habakkuk could of the re great redemptive event of the Exodus. He then can conclude with those um, consoling verses, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. He's able to say, I'll joy in the God of my salvation because I think what we've seen is the salvation of God breaking into his consciousness from the beginning where his consciousness was dominated by the events to a transition where his consciousness is dominated by God's power. He still doesn't have answers, he's still got to pray thy kingdom come, like we have to pray thy kingdom come. But what has fed him is this picture of the end of all things. So that's the journey that the structure of the book, I think, shows. And it's, uh, to pick up your point, Paul, it is a dialogue. This is what I'll finish with. It's, it's a dialogue. Now, dialogue is a really, really interesting dramatic device. Um, it's dramatic because you've got two people talking and we're used to drama in a play. Drama in poetry is a bit different, but the most famous example probably is John Donne. Don't you, any of you remember reading John Donne, the great metaphysical poet, but his, poet, his poetry is generally speaking half of a conversation. So, you know, some of his love poems, he's bitching about being betrayed by this awful woman and you read it through, but you can't help thinking, actually, I think that woman was right, John. <laughs> uh, you were a bit of a bastard, really, you know. And, and he's doing that deliberately because rather than presenting a packaged forensic, here's what happened, we're getting a sense of human beings engaging in cut and thrust. And, and that's what the literature gives us. So it's very important when you get literature like that, and Job is, of course, an extended dialogue, not to take a verse out as a propositional truth. I mean, my favourite one is there's a famous Sydney school, I won't mention who it is, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, that their motto comes from one of Job's comforters. 
think it's your old school, I think. So like, it wasn't meant to be like God is speaking. You know, this was somebody who was a false comforter. <laughs> um, so, so the fact that this, it's really interesting to me, just to step right back, that our scripture, our scripture is not a set of kind of axioms, propositions and procedures. It includes this, you know, and what, this of course is only one example, but a, a dramatic dialogue. It seems to authorise doubt and questions as part of how God wants to interact. So I, I had three sort of theological things to learn from that dialogue structure. The first one um, uh, is that um, questioning seems important to God. I, I personally don't know how you learn anything if you don't ask a question. And there's this great irony that sometimes the deeper the question, the more troubled it is, the, the, the more you're going to learn. Like it's scary to ask some questions. And it seems that people who ask the biggest questions get the biggest answers. I had a very uh, extreme example of this when I was a visiting professor at Carnegie Mellon in 1995. They had a very famous professor there called Herb Simon who um, got the Nobel Prize for Economics um, but also claimed to be have invented artificial intelligence. It might be a bit of a stretch, but nonetheless. And when I was there, um, I had a few interactions with him which were very interesting on thinking. Um, despite all of his brightness, he really believed that the mind was a machine. And what they were doing in one of the things to prove that back then for artificial intelligence, they developed a computer program where they could feed into the program the data available to Kepler and the program would take 14 seconds to derive his laws. The so what out of that in Herb Simon's mind was, well, Kepler's a bit slow and the mind's a machine. Um, but my contention was, well, actually, no, that's wrong because he also told me that actually if they got some of their bright students over lunchtime and, and gave them all the the data that Kepler had, it didn't take them 14 seconds, but it, they did it in two hours. So the conclusion that he drew was completely wrong. The conclusion is, well, why was Kepler so bright? Because once you've got all the data, it's actually not that hard to derive the laws. What's more interesting is Kepler was the only person on the earth asking the questions. He was the one troubled by present paradigms, so he went and looked differently. So that's just an example of ask big questions, you're liable to get big answers. And I think we can really, it's interesting that I, if, if we say, just as I began talking about with Jeremiah, if God says my, my great goal is you'll know me and understand me, then it appears that this will be a interactive dialogue. So that's my first point. Um, and um, his questions were, I did want to make one other point, because his questions were not faithless. It was, they were never, do you exist, you're not there. They were questions, assuming you do, but that's, it's an anomaly, I can't fit you in. Um, and I guess suffering does that. It's just one of the things that does that to us. 
And um, I thought of the words of Jesus in that, in that regard. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So that's the first thing the dialogue structure taught me. The second thing is uh, that paradox is at the heart of wisdom. Um, not neat answers, not neat sequential answers. And, and what I would, this diagram I've got here is a series of paradoxes. Well, you're sovereign, okay, I get that. But if, if you're sovereign, what are the Babylonians doing? Now, as I went through this, I don't know, is anyone here thinking of Romans 9, 10 and 11? Because Habakkuk is doing Romans 9, 10 and 11. Because Paul had exactly the same problem Okay, God saved the church. What about Israel? I mean, they've been used, they've been discarded. Where do they fit in? So he had this anomaly of, you know, them being discarded. Same thing. So paradox is essentially um, I think it just the way that paradox works is that we tend to have, it's pretty well always the same, an ideal. Some ideal belief uh, framework, and down here you've got life, you know, reality, uh, stuff happening that doesn't fit in. And the paradox seems to be, well, how can this be true in the face of that ideal. That's a generalisation, but that is one of the great paradoxes we face. And that's where I think Habakkuk began. There's an ideal, but then there's a reality here and they're just not matching up. I can't match them up. But the what happens in real life is if these things start to talk to each other, that's what I'd call the thing, uh, that's a heuristic called the flying wedge, if they start to talk to each other, I come out with a third way that's new. It's um, the ideal in, 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 in a context. And so that's what dialogue tends to do. And that's where I think Habakkuk went on a journey from, you know, arguably back here you could say, well, that, concept you had was naive, it was limited, now you've got something that's much more deep and connected. So that's, that's the second thing um, that, I mean the ultimate paradox, the ultimate, ultimate paradox of this one is if the ideal is God. And we also, okay, if God's all powerful, how come? Which is our version of down here, we've got humanity, you know, life, suffering, how do these things actually connect? And, th and that's not just a Christian problem, that's platonic, that's everyone's problem. How, how do you connect these things? The ultimate answer that we've, you know, beyond Habakkuk, could say is the incarnation, which is the ultimate resolution of a paradox between the transcendent God and the reality of what it is to be a human being. That's the second thing I think that the dialogue teaches us. And the third thing to finish on is that um, it appears to me more and more that um, God seems to be involved in the dialogue as well as us. 
he seems to be learning too. I'll just put it bluntly like that because that's obviously, does he learn? Well, it's a very interesting question, but it seems that God is dynamic and engaged because the way that these books are written is he's a player, he's got part of the dialogue, he listens, he responds. And when, when we read that with the ideal of a transcendent, all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent God, it doesn't make sense. So I think that picture of God has got to be moderated by a God who, it appears, um, is a God who is supremely committed to engagement and co-creation, supremely committed to it. Um, and the he doesn't he won't be satisfied by just you know passivity on our side he actually needs us to engage uh, with him um, and transition his will onto the earth because going back to which is my last point i'll make bulkakov's question about that serpent slithering across the face of the earth you know who's going to govern the world well the answer is god is not going to do it he's not going to do it ex cathedra he he has boxed himself into a corner with the ultimate act of delegation to do it through us so therefore only out of engagement with us and us accommodating his will and aligning with his will will the earth be adequately governed so i guess the um the journey of a book like Habakkuk, as others like Job and so on, are dramatic examples of that. So that was uh, the things that I, or some of the things I'd found uh, you know, fascinating and, and relevant in, in the book of uh, Job. I'll stop there and um, open it up to anyone for comments and questions and thoughts. <laughs>